we like to see serial founders for sure, because it, what it indicates to us is that they have grit. And that is so important in, in being a founder and seeing something through to the end, because a lot of people have great ideas. Like tons of people have great ideas, but actually bringing those ideas into the world and seeing them through in some way is so hard. Not only does it take like a skill set and intellect, it also just takes this grit, this willingness to just kind of push through anything. Welcome to Founder Friendly, we're NYU's first student-led technology and venture capital podcast. Here, we provide an inside look into startups and VCs to help you break into the industry and learn more about the latest technologies and trends. Today, our guest is Genevieve Gilbreth. Genevieve is currently a co-founder and general partner at Springdale Ventures, as well as a general partner at Notley. It was a real pleasure to hear her walk through how her experiences as an entrepreneur helped shape how she invests in the food and beverage space. In our conversation, we dive into what factors go into delivering a successful product, how important it is to be a serial entrepreneur, and the metrics she uses to evaluate successful brands in the space. Join us as we chat with Genevieve about her history as a founder and investor. Hey everyone, welcome to our second episode of our food and beverage sprint. Our guest today, Genevieve Gilbreth. She's a co-founder and general partner at Springdale Ventures and a general partner at Notley Ventures. Her expertise lies in the consumer goods space as she was a founder of two global import-export supplement companies prior to her transition into the investing space. She was previously worked as a managing director at SKU, the first consumer products accelerator in the US. We're excited to get into it and thank you Genevieve for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So just kicking it off, Genevieve, could you give us a brief background on yourself as well as Springdale Venture? Sure. Yeah. So I've been in the consumer product space for about 20 years, since the early 2000s. The first company I had in the consumer product space was a supplement B2B contract manufacturer brand. We did contract manufacture um, production in California and Hawaii and exported over to Europe. I did that for a number of years. And then after living in India for about five years, I'd moved back to Hawaii and launched Herbalzop, which was a company that makes instantly dissolving Ayurvedic beverages and got that into a few thousand stores, did a small transaction with that. And then, as you mentioned, their SKU went on to run SKU for a few years, wanting to start angel investing and giving back and helping other entrepreneurs. While I was there, I met my co-founder in the fund, Dan Graham. And we just kept seeing that there was this real gap in the market for early stage strategic capital for consumer brands. And with my networks and his networks, as he's also a consumer entrepreneur, I'm being classic entrepreneurs, we're like, let's start a fund. And so in 2019, we launched Springdale Ventures, which was initial fund. We targeted 20 million, ended up raising 27. We're currently on fund two, currently raising for that. We've invested in about 35 brands to date across the spectrum of consumer. So everything from food, beverage, durable goods, you name it. Perfect. Yeah. So you briefly mentioned that you found a Herbal Zap and you're like a founder yourself. So we would just like to like touch point on that and we dive into it. Could you like give us some background on Herbal Zap? Yeah, no, I originally got into the consumer products business because I've always been really passionate about human health and how people interact with their environments and natural products to heal. So I, I've studied herbal medicine for, 
for years. And that was what originally kind of got me interested in these two supplement companies, which are both herbal supplements. And when I was living in India, I was always using this product that was Ayurvedic herbal product, bring it back to friends in the US and everyone loved it. It really helps them get better. And I was a classic entrepreneur. I'm like, okay, well, I should launch it over here. And so I, I went over and made a deal with the company in Sri Lanka that produces it to basically have have my own brand with it because the current brand was a it was very Sri Lankan brand. So it wasn't the, the cultural translation really wasn't there for the American market. And so I, I struck a deal with them, brought the product over here, kind of like so many entrepreneurs didn't really have a clue how to bring anything to market. So it was a lot of trial and error, made a lot of mistakes, raised a little bit of capital, not a ton, and just kind of hit a lot of potholes and had some success. And and that's really why I wanted to help other entrepreneurs, like having had that experience, I think makes a really, really helpful perspective to the companies that we invest in now. Yeah, quickly just following up on that, because it does sound like there were probably a few different challenges when doing your first startup. You kind of said that you had a little bit of trouble raising like financing as well as like getting into stores. I just kind of love to hear what you thought the biggest challenge was and maybe like what you kind of learned from that experience. Yeah, great question. The biggest challenge, I think, I was so new to the industry, just not really understanding the importance and the intricacies of like how to bring a product to market in the right channels. Having a good channel strategy, I think, is one of the one of the things that's most crucial for early stage entrepreneurs. And then when you're going out and fundraising, the product that I had was a little different because it was basically a licensed deal. So like going out for venture was just really not appropriate for the type of business that I had. And I wasn't, I mean, I wasn't necessarily going out for venture with it. It was more kind of on, on the angel level. And I think it's just really important when you're starting any company, whether it's consumer or other space, to understand what kind of like, what is the ultimate outcome for your business and what's the right financing strategy to pursue? Because there's a lot, like venture is just one of many types of financing strategies, so. And just to pull up on that point, because there are like many different financing types as venture that like angel fund does. And the purpose of venture, like end of the day, the venture funders, they want to generate a return, right? And that itself might not be applicable for many of the consumer goods, especially in like the food and beverage space. So what would you say are like some of the characteristics of brands in the food and beverage space that would make that suitable or would make venture funding like applicable for them? Yeah, good question as well. I think within the food and beverage space, there's ample opportunity to have lifestyle brands as well as venture-funded brands. And I think when we look at brands through Springdale, really what we're looking for is like, is there a big enough addressable market and somebody out here, whether a strategic or a big private equity fund that would want to provide that downstream capital and eventually buy that brand so it has to be a brand that's in a category where there is some acquisitiveness. And it also should be in a category that when you look at bars and beverage, there's been a lot of acquisitions in both those categories, but they're incredibly competitive. Beverage in particularly, like incredibly cash in intensive. We haven't done any bar brands. I don't think we will ever do a bar brand just because it's just so hit or miss. Beverage, we've done a number. But those, those outcomes tend to be very fairly binary as well. But when we're looking at when we're looking at brands, I'll give you an example. Goodles is the mac and cheese brand that we've invested in, and and I think is a perfect example of a food and beverage brand that, that's suitable for venture. 
So it's a category that's huge. I mean, mac and cheese alone is $4 billion. There's one incumbent, two incumbents really, but that are that are old and little brands are a little bit stale. There hasn't been a huge innovation in the category since Annie's. And that was 20 years ago when Annie's really was on the, kind of a new brand. So there's a huge opportunity for disruption. There's a huge market, huge opportunity for disruption. And then we look at the, the team. It's like, okay, are the margins there? Is the team, do we have a really strong founding team? Are they able to attract good talent? Is the brand strong? Like the Goodles brand is fantastic. So as you, you start to look at those, those are some of the, the top key things we look at. And the product, of course, the product has to be amazing, like period. Yeah, no, I remember when I was like looking at the product of Google, the box was very bright, very eye-catching. It was on the shelves against like Kraft mac and cheese. I mean, I don't eat mac and cheese, but I've been picked like picking out. I would definitely catch my eye. So in terms of Google's, I think it's targeting adults as opposed to like children within mac and cheese. So can you perhaps like speak a little with like the market making opportunities in terms of changing the target audience of a traditional product? Like shifting it towards a different age demographic or something like that? That's a good question. Again, with Goodles in particular, when you look at Kraft Mac and Cheese, it's not just kids eating it. It's adults as well, but the marketing's all geared towards kids. So I think what they're doing is, yeah, they probably are expanding the base market for adults in general because they have more sophisticated flavors like Shelly Good and they just came out with this truffle one with here comes truffle. So clearly like more adult focused flavors. They're like, oh, these adults are actually already eating it. Why don't we just target to them as well? So a lot of times, some of the best ideas that you'll see are still some of the simplest. It's like you don't need to necessarily overthink it to the nth degree. But they've done a really good job, I think, of keeping it fresh, keeping it fun, but sophisticated enough that it also appeals to adults. For sure. And I want to quickly jump back to something that you were saying earlier about like the product really needs to be good, right? Especially in this in this consumer space that can be saturated at times and that's super competitive. I'd love to kind of ask because when I was doing research on one of the portfolio companies that you have, Judy's, which does emergency aid kits, I noticed that there were a lot of kind of blogs that were complementing its design, the way it appeals based on like its minimalist and, and simple and bright orange color scheme. I was kind of wondering what exactly are you looking at? Could you name like maybe the three main factors that would go into what would be a great delivery of a product? So maybe like just like the taste, maybe something like the marketing, but I'd love to kind of hear what you think. So I think it has to be solving a real problem, first of all. I think that a lot of times entrepreneurs get so caught up in like, oh, I'm really excited about this idea or this thing is just exactly what I need, that they're not necessarily paying great attention to what the market really needs and to what consumers really want. So I think the first thing is like making sure that you're really solving a real problem and that you're obsessed with what your customers have to say about it, both in the development process and as you go to market. So, and continue to be obsessed with it. So anytime you're developing a product, I think that's probably number one. Number two is that it has to really solve that problem. It has to be functional in a way, either through the great taste or whether it's food or beverage or like in the case of Judy, it's making preparing for disasters so much easier than if you're having to put the kids together yourself or if you're a suburban mom in Illinois and you don't really necessarily relate to Alex Jones and the whole prepper community, 
so many of the emergency kits are really targeted towards is this whole community that doesn't represent them. So it's like Judy recognized that there's basically a whole like middle America that wasn't getting targeted for this need. So I'd say that's number two, is just making sure that you have a product that really that need that you have. And what is like a, a third one, I think? The third one is just making sure that you execute like narrow. I mean, I think one of the things that entrepreneurs get caught up in a lot of times, and we see it with so many of our entrepreneurs, is just we become entrepreneurs. And I say this because I'm one, because we love big ideas and because we get excited by new ideas. And I think that when you're taking a company to market, it's really important to also have that laser pointed focus. So being really focused and willing to follow an idea all the way through, not to say they're not going to pivot because in early stage business, you're pivoting a lot, but making sure that you're always going towards that North Star. That way. So I think just following on point, you mentioned a product solving a purpose or like having a mission. If we look towards just like trends nowadays, like fun-based products, they are trying to solve climate. They are trying to like adapt to changing consumerism, alternative needs, being environmentally friendly. So just that theme itself, do you think like that is still a very current and very relevant theme in funding right now? Or do you see it actually sort of being a little behind just because of how saturated it is? Yeah, when we look at it, look at trends these days, especially for younger millennials and Gen Z, as they start coming up and having more buying power, it's really clear that there's a lot more focus on companies being mission-driven, having a focus on sustainability and, and really trying to preserve the world that we live in. So whereas you look at the older generations, boomers, X, even maybe elder millennials, it's not like they're not values-focused, but it's just it's not quite as tied as closely with like, I'm not going to spend my dollars on this if it's not going to have a mission behind it. So I think that it's something that will continue to be really important, especially on the climate front. In times like these, when inflation is high and it's a balance between purchasing power with mission behind it and just being able to make the most use of your dollar. So the companies that are able to incorporate both mission and value are going to do the best. It's something that I don't think it's going away. And yeah, just like diving in to one of Springdale's portfolio companies, Cost. So they are a plant-based protein startup. Could you speak a little more? Since we're already on the topic, just like towards that company as well as the funding story itself. Sure. Yeah, I actually just got off our Q4 board meeting earlier today. So it's top of mind. Yeah, no, that's a great brand. And that was a brand that was born out of a real mission behind it. Alan and Tony were expert Amazon sellers. They came from the audiovisual side of the side of the world and we're selling all kinds of audiovisual widgets on Amazon and it just developed a really great skill set and we're out selling all the manufacturers for these little widgets. And then they had a friend who had an unhealthy lifestyle and then eventually developed pancreatic cancer and passed away and they were really impacted by it. The guy was young in his forties and they really it really was kind of a wake up call to them to want to improve their own health and help improve the lives of one around them. And so they've said, well, hey, we've got this great skill set where we know how to reach customers on Amazon and really effective at that. And let's put that to good use. And so they partnered with a great co-manufacturer and came up with some really healthy, super tasty 
plant-based proteins and launched it first on Amazon and then have expanded out through retail. And I mean, first of all, their products are amazing. They're like the, some of the best tasting plant-based proteins and have comparable nutrition profiles. So that made it the product itself very successful. The authenticity behind the brand also was what really, really gave it heart and that foundation to be believable. We got involved. We led their seed round and they, at that point, they had a strong Amazon business and were just starting to go into retail. So I had a few retail points of distribution and because of my background in supplement and relationships within the retail space and just kind of knowledge of that channel, it made us a good fit for them as investors. So we were able to really help them navigate through the early stages of getting it off in retail and thinking through some of the strategic decisions there and helping them think through who to hire for like the right team. And now they've got a really strong team in place and just they're in over 11,000 doors now. So they're, they're cruising. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great answer. And there's, there's a lot to unpack there. And I'd love to kind of ask a two-part question. So you had said that the brand was super authentic and that was a great kind of appealing aspect of it. I also know that some of the founders and, and the team around you had like an entrepreneurial experience historically. I'm kind of wondering what the benefits are of like the serial entrepreneurs or people who have been in the space for a while, as well as some of the benefits that you as a VC offer. I know you had talked about like kind of retail partnerships. And do you think maybe consumer focused VCs are a natural advantage and it's super important on which investors you choose as a startup? Absolutely. No, good. Yeah, you're probably going to remind me of the back half parts of that question, but good questions. On the front half, I think we like to see serial founders for sure, because it, what it indicates to us is that they have grit. And that is so important in, in being a founder and seeing something through to the end, because a lot of people have great ideas. Like tons of people have great ideas, but actually bringing those ideas into the world and seeing them through in some way is so hard. It's so hard. Not only does it take like a skill set and intellect, it also just takes this grit, this willingness to just kind of push through anything. And when we see serial founders, even if they haven't been super successful in the, the endeavor before, looking at how they navigated whatever the company was before tells you so much. So we really like to see that. A lot of times we'll see founders who come from consulting or corporate backgrounds. Like a lot of the consulting entrepreneurs, it's interesting because they'll have great strategy. They'll really have done it through. The decks look beautiful. The numbers look beautiful. But the actual like getting down to business, it's a whole other story. So we've seen some that come from consulting and man, do they have that grit and it pushed it through. Okay, when you have that combination, it's amazing. But a lot of times people will go into consulting because they like that idea phase and coming up with the ideas, but not necessarily the, I'm going to push that giant truck up the hill for the next five years of my life. So anyway, that was, that was a little bit of a random aside. So what, like, what do we bring to the table as VC? Was that part two? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think having, especially Dan and I both having had the entrepreneurial experience, like there's just, we just get it on a visceral level of like what it takes to, to push that truck up the hill for five years. And I think that that's not something that you can, you can't really replace or kind of manufacture that unless you've walked in those same shoes. So I think even having that, experience and that empathy and the ability to like sit down with founders when they're in those dark moments and be able to kind of help them get through that is is really valuable so i think there's like just an intrinsic 
experience sharing piece that we bring to the table that's really helpful. In addition to that, I mean, on a very practical level, I mean, I've been in the industry 20 years, so it's like I have a huge network and a, ton, a big ecosystem. I know how the, the retail channels work. We know who the great agencies are. We know who to, how to avoid. We know like what what the right channel to start off in is. So I think there's just an, a knowledge and connections within within the ecosystem to be able to kind of give our, our companies an unfair advantage, if you will. And we also work on really cultivating the relationships between the founders in our portfolio, because whereas Dan and I have done it, like I haven't been in the trenches on the day-to-day for quite a while, but these other founders are. And so it's like, if I know that founder, I just did this today, one founder is looking for building other innovation department, and I know somebody else just did it. And I'm like, what was the process you went through? Did you have any candidates that you didn't hire that were great? And so doing that kind of thing. And I think that on the kind of the third point on the consumer, the consumer investors, I think a lot of, a good number, a, a good number of the consumer investors we co-invest with may not have been entrepreneurs, but they come from a consumer operating background. And I think that that, I think that's really helpful. So, and it's, because it, it's hard to, at the early, at the, as you get into private equity and growth, maybe it doesn't matter quite as much if you haven't been that entrepreneur operator. A lot of it's financial engineering. The system and process is already in place. So it's a lot of refining. But at the kind of the, the early mudslinging stages, I think it really is differentiating. Yeah. Yeah. And also just like, once again, tying back to an earlier point. So because founders experience matter to some extent in like venture and early stage startups, what would you say to those who are, do not have founder experience. So first-time founders who are just starting out their brand in consumer goods and food and beverage, what are you going to say to them, to like these entrepreneurs? Don't do it. No, I'm just kidding. No, if I mean, it's kind of like when somebody says to you, oh, I'm going to have kids. They're like, oh, that it's really, really hard. And you're just like, oh, how hard can it be? And every parent ever, that's just how it goes. And then as soon as you have a kid, you're like, oh, this is really hard. So it's the same thing with starting a company. I mean, it's like knowing your why is so important. Like, why are you doing this? Like if you're if you're doing this because you're really passionate about the about the product, about the category, about serving the consumer, and and that's what's waking you up and driving, then that's that's great. That's a good reason. But if you're doing it because like, hey, I think this could be great. I'm gonna have a good outcome and sell my cereal to General Mills and be a gazillionaire. That's probably not the right, the best motivation because that that's not that won't get you through. Like you can go and make most cases probably a whole lot more money in investment banking or being a surgeon or whatever than most entrepreneurs will ever make. So if the if the, the money is the motivation, find another way. But like if there's if there's something that's really driving you, like you love creating businesses and solving problems and suffering terribly, then become an entrepreneur. Yeah. <laughs> totally get that. I'd love to kind of backtrack a little bit because I, I know that you had mentioned part of the reason why you thought you were a good fit to invest in in costs was the, the fact that you had maybe like connections to important retailers. And I was wondering, like, I know they had sold on Amazon before they, they went to retailers. What is the kind of decision making process for distributors to, to finding distributors? Do you cast a wide net and be like, go to Amazon, go to like, anyone we can, or do you maybe target indie stores based on the kind of brand's potential appeal? 
Yeah, it definitely depends on the brand itself. In the case of Koss, they had a good base for Amazon already. And it was like a, a matter, I think, for them of finding the right anchor channel partner, which in their case was Whole Foods. So they started they started in a, a few small natural channel food stores in California where they're based, just to kind of get some initial traction to be able to go to Whole Foods and say, hey, this is this is what we've got. You should put us on shelf in your 300 stores. So I think it's it's really important, depending on which product you're having, what your end game strategy is and how much kind of capital you have available to you. Because each one of those things factors into like how you go about designing your channel strategy. But for them, they were capitalized. They had a good digital presence. They had a co-manufacturer who could keep up with with supply. And Whole Foods was just very, was very brand aligned. And so that's why that made a good partner for them. I see. And on that same level, if they already had like maybe like a bit of traction within the stores in California, I'm wondering what kind of other metrics you might use for traction. So are you focusing on maybe like the revenue that is getting or the number of partners that they have? How important is like the, the kind of brand appeal? Do they have manufacturing partners? What's the main priority in terms of like evaluating them on, on a metric standpoint? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's, it's very multi-piece. Like I think about when we look at any brand, I always think about it as like a combination lock. One of those locks that has like six numbers on the base of it and they have to all line up correctly for it to open. So that's, that's how we think about it. It's like, do they have good product market fit, which is usually proved by traction, which means revenue. And what kind of quality is that revenue? Are they buying their customers, meaning like, are they spending more than they're making from their customers? Or is it somewhat organic or if not organic than being acquired at a, an appropriate price? So looking at what kind of traction is there? What kind of proof of customer stickiness do we have? So if it's direct to consumer, then our, what's their retention rate like? If it's in stores, it's like, what's the velocity? So we're not as concerned about like number of doors super fast as I am concerned about how is it moving off the shelf? So, because a lot of brands can go out and get distribution really quickly, but if they can't support the distribution or if it's not moving off the shelf at higher velocities, then they're going to run out of money sooner than later. Yeah, like falling on in terms of like product placement and shelves and stuff like that. For Spring New Ventures, how do you guys usually have that first interaction with the founders that you guys consider funding? Is it mainly through application towards Springdale Ventures or the Springdale Ventures of like scouts out in the field and just like grocery stores? Yeah. So how does that look? Yeah, we look across the spectrum. I think the majority of deals that we do have somehow come in through the network, either recommended to us or we've seen it through one of the different kind of early stage startup programs we're involved in, like naturally. There's a naturally network, there's startup CPG, snapshots, thing testing. So we keep our eyes out on like just the pulse of what's what's happening and kind of what's popping up into the cultural lexicon. And then we, because again, we've been in the industry for a really long time and I really like people. So I have a big network. And so just, just having a lot of input from whether it's buyers or our venture partners or industry executives that we know. We have a lot of deal input. Like we see about 250 deals a quarter 
and consumer. So good number of early stage consumer deals that come into our pipeline. We don't, for cold outreach, I don't know that we have ever done a deal that's just come in cold. Not that we wouldn't, but it just hasn't. And I don't think we've missed any that have come in cold that have gone on to be really successful. Yeah, yeah, I thought that totally makes sense. And I think I kind of wanted to like maybe change up the pace real quick because I did want to ask a question. I recently read from a study from Pepsi and they were basically talking about how they anticipate more like a flock to bigger name brands in the face of like the current state of the market. I'm kind of wondering if you see any validity to that and how that might pose potential challenges to some of your portfolio companies. Yeah, it's anytime there's a kind of a contraction in the market, you see a lot of like more private label sales going up. I don't know, big name, maybe because it were value-based just like cash value based. So you would see that, but certainly people become more cost conscious. And that typically means that you're going for private label or bigger brands that are able to have the lower price. But it kind of comes back to what you'd asked earlier about, I think the younger generations are really using their wallet to assert their values. So I expect it to be a little bit less with that market. So do you see this opportunity for many of these new companies in the space to maybe like charge a premium of sorts, just because the younger generation, I think all the marketing reports are saying like consumer spending is increasing. So how do you think brands, new brands in the space should approach pricing? Should they just be chasing that premium or should they really be focusing on distribution first and then increasing pricing? It's really hard to increase price. So like I would try and come out of the gates with this, the price as high as you think the market can bear and then move down as it's validated if you have to. But it, it's tricky. Yeah. And I think that any emerging brand, you're never going to be able to compete on price. So you shouldn't try. I think that in most cases will be priced above the mass market, you know, levers, Pepsi's, all of those. But you have to also like really know who your customer is. So it's a, it's a dance between okay, if I'm an emerging brand, likely I'm going to have a more premium price point, but how far can I push it before I'm not going to be able to acquire those customers? And does that work with my margins? And this other thing is you sometimes you'll see, we don't be too many think on this, but you'll see folks starting businesses that they, they want to be at a certain price point and it doesn't actually allow them to be a real business. And so they've got these terrible margins that maybe they'll improve with volume and some of them like beverage and, and even like some mass food, eventually your margins will start off bad. But once you get to volume, they better be really good. So, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think before we wrap up, I'd love to kind of ask, as our podcast is targeted towards like an undergraduate university community, what kind of advice would you give to someone interested in this space who really wants to learn more, maybe go into VC within it or start a company within it? Yeah, I would say go work with a startup. I think get your hands, get your hands dirty. Be an, be an intern, be a low-paying employee because if you're in a startup with food and beverage, you're not going to be well-paid, period. <laughs> so as long as you can afford to pay your bills, go do that for a while and really learn by doing because I think there's so much, there's so much theory out there, but you can only get so far with theory. So you really need to kind of go get your hands dirty, particularly if you're interested in the consumer VC I would say the same, like we really like that both Dan and I coming from an entrepreneur operator background, we really like to hire 
associates and partners who have worked in consumer, who have worked as operators. So they don't have to necessarily be entrepreneurs, but they know what it's like inside a smaller corporate finance department or on the product side or the operations side. That really, it really helps with being able to pick good businesses and work with the founders and, and develop that founder respect because these founders are working so hard. And the last thing they want really is like some banker coming in to like tell them how to go to market. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I think having that entrepreneurial background gives you a lot of like empathy towards your fellow founders as well as just expertise within the industry. That makes sense. Genevieve, you've been amazing and we really appreciate you coming on the podcast. For all of our viewers, thank you so much for tuning in and we'll see you on the next episode of Founder Friendly. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure being here.